Rev it up and welcome to Cars Yeah, show number 2106. This week on Cars Yeah, we're celebrating the 48th annual Forest Grove Concours. It takes place July 17th on the beautiful campus of Pacific University, just west of Portland, Oregon. This show is a rich tradition that started in 1973. You'll enjoy hundreds of vehicles on a spectacular setting. To learn more, go to forestgroveconcours.org. This is Cars Yeah, where you'll enjoy interviews with inspiring automotive enthusiasts. Mark Green is here to provide you with a fuel injection of automotive inspiration. So get in, sit down, buckle up, and get ready for a wild ride here on Cars Yeah. Hello, inspiring automotive enthusiasts, and welcome to Cars Yeah. Today, I'm just a little bit south of Gig Harbor, Washington, in Olympia, Washington, our capital here in the state, with a very special guest by the name of Scott Marquis. Scott, welcome to Cars Yeah. Do you have any gear, and are you ready to release the clutch? I am ready to go, Mark. Thank you very much for having me and looking forward to it. Well, have some fun here. Now, before we get started, what's one little thing that maybe people don't know about you, Scott? The thing that people probably don't know about me is that I never graduated from high school. Really? Okay. Now that begs the question, why? I was the child of academic parents, and I think I peaked academically about sixth grade and went through an extended rebellion against school through junior high and high school. Wow. I dropped out of high school as a junior, which truly scared my parents. They really didn't know why that was, but it was just some sort of deep-seated rebellion against the notion of education. But I ended up back in college and sort of followed a fairly normal track through college after that, but never earned a high school degree. Isn't that interesting? Well, so typically, and back in the day, because I won't say you're an old guy, but you're a more mature guy than a young, 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 young guy, usually colleges require a high school diploma. So how did you get around that? So I took the, what is called a, a GED, which people probably are familiar with, a, it's called a graduate equivalency degree, uh, or diploma actually, which is a test that was a lot easier than the tests I probably would have taken in high school, to be honest, <laughs> yeah. and was acceptable, to, at least at that time, to many colleges in lieu of a diploma. I took the standardized tests, but I don't think they were used for my admission because I was into my 20s by the time I was ultimately admitted to college. My dad conspired to get me into college college by working with a former colleague of his who had been a university professor with him at the University of Michigan. And I think they worked behind the scenes to get me routed back into college where, you know, I ultimately did graduate. But it was an odd, it was an odd path. Yeah, a different, different course for sure. So, uh, but here we sit. So very cool story. Well, let me give you a proper introduction and we'll dive into what you're up to. Scott Marquis is a retired financial professional and an unapologetic car enthusiast. Finding early retirement a snore. I like that. He did some consulting plus two years riding and managing auctions for Bring a Trailer. I just sold a car on there. Scott spends his time supporting a worldwide community of Triumph Italia owners. Very unique car. We're going to learn more about and enthusiasts brokering an occasional car sale and patiently waiting for his spouse to retire. His career was in banking and then had a two-decade run at Russell Investments, finishing with 16 years as pricing director for the firm's institutional investment business. His passion for the Triumph Italia brings Scott to the Forest Grove Concours, where we'll see three of those vehicles, and that will be pretty cool. So there you go. We'll be back in just a minute, but first a word from our valued sponsors, so please give them a little listen, and we'll be right back. 
My friends at Covercraft offer you 10 different options. That's right, 10 for your vehicle's protection. You can choose from WeatherShield HP, HD, Sunbrella, Ultratect, Reflect, FormFit, Custom View Shield, and their newest five-layer all-climate cover, three-layer moderate climate cover, and a five-layer indoor option. You have all sorts of ways to protect your car. All of these are custom-tailored by Covercraft's talented craftspeople. It's the form and fit with the quality to attention to detail that's been their standard since 1965. Surface protection is the best way to preserve the investment you've made in your vehicles. It's what I do. Covercraft protects cars, trucks, motorcycles, RVs, trailers, and watercraft too. I have a Covercraft cover for every one of my vehicles, and I've got a deal for you. If you use the code YEAH21, Y-E-A-H-21, at Covercraft.com, they'll give you 10% off your order, plus you get free shipping. That's right, 10% off and free shipping. Just use the code YEAH21 at checkout. Covercraft, protecting the things that move you. Most people don't think about their collector car insurance until their annual premium becomes due. Well, why wait and see if there are better options for your beloved rides? I didn't. Did you know if you change carriers before your policy runs out, your insurance company has to refund you the unearned portion of your policy premium? I did my homework, I shopped around, and I found American Collectors Insurance. And that's who protects my Porsche Turbo. That's right, the one I call my Orange Crush. They've been protecting collector vehicles since 1976. I encourage you to call my friends at American Collectors Insurance. Ask them about their agreed value policy. And if your collector vehicle is on your regular auto policy, you will be shocked at the savings, not to mention the assurance, should something bad happen to your ride, that you'll get what your vehicle is actually worth. Give them a call today for a quote at 866-ACI-YEAH. That's 866 224 9324. Tell them you're a friend of Mark Green at Cars Yeah, American Collectors Insurance. Classic car insurance designed by collectors for collectors. Automotive enthusiasts just like you and me. That's American Collectors Insurance. Give them a call today. So, Scott, let's talk more about your life and particularly around cars. Now, you've retired. But it sounds like you're at home playing with cars. And you have a very unique car that I think I've only seen one in my entire life. I'm sure it was at a car show. was this Italia. So tell us more about this very unique car, how you got involved with it, and uh, some history about the Italia. Sure. I did not grow up in a car household. I did not grow up with parents who, who collected cars or drove interesting cars. So I'm not sure where that came from, but I became interested in Triumphs, I think, because I grew up in college towns in the Midwest, and college kids tended to have slightly more interesting cars, and, and that included a lot of MGs and Triumphs. I had a roommate just before I went back to college who had bought a very nice TR4, I drove that a few times, really enjoyed it, and knew that I was going to have a British car at some point. And I had acquired a book, which I think is probably still published, which is called the, I think it's called the Original Triumph Buying Guide. And it's a it's a fairly typical tome with six or eight pages on each model, TRs, two TR2s, threes, fours, fives, sixes. And in the back, there was a section that was, I think it was just called Other Stuff. And it had a page or two on the more esoteric and rarest of Triumph models. And that included the Triumph Italia 2000. And there were two really, really terrible photographs of the car. But what I could tell from the the images were that it was different, that it, it didn't have that 
British slab-sided feel, that, that 1950s feel to the car. It felt more stylish. It w- had curves. It felt more Italian, although I don't, don't know that I knew that it was Italian at the time. And I became sort of enamored of the car and knew that I would always want one. And when the time came to begin looking for a car to have as a, as a fun car, that's the one I went looking for. They're quite rare. They built 330 cars, 328 production units, and two prototypes. And the basic construct is that they took completed Triumph TR3 chassis out of production before the bodies were ever fit to the car. So you basically had a running, driving car with an interior, gauges, everything except a body. They plucked them from production ship them in batches we think of, of of five at a time from the UK by rail then by ship to Italy where they went to the the Vignali works of so Vignali VIG NALE is a coach builder like Frua like Pininfarina and there the bodies were handmade this is sheet formed steel being pounded over bucks and with an english wheel and they formed these unique bodies that were then fitted to the cars they were beautiful. They were sought after even in their time, but they didn't sell well because they were quite expensive for the time. They when first when they first emerged, they were about the same price as a Jaguar E-Type. And I love my car, but in 1961, I'd have probably bought the E-Type like most people did. <laughs> yeah. When I began looking for one, was and you you mentioned my age, and it's I'm I'm old enough that when I began looking in 1999 was the very early stages of really email. We had no internet mm-hmm. to speak of but we were, we were beginning to email. And so looking for a car, particularly a rare car, meant you know snail mail and magazines and so forth. And I ultimately stumbled on a very small ad about the size of a postage stamp in the back of Triumph World, advertising a car for sale in Germany. And I acquired the car, had it shipped to the U.S., and ultimately took it through a 12-year restoration here in Seattle, actually, um, at a shop up in Wallingford. The interesting thing to, to, I guess, to realize about the cars is, in addition to their being rare, is they're a bit of a dichotomy. They're mechanically quite basic because they are very standard Triumph fare. There's a few parts that are unusual on the car, but for the most part, it's a very stock TR3. And you can buy any part of a TR3 you want, but a new engine block from a catalog. But the bodies were hand-formed. There is, There are no replacement panels. There are Most of the trim is unique to the car. Wow. And so it's very simple to restore mechanically or simple as simple as a Triumph. It's at that time was almost impossible to replace and restore the everything above the, the ground level. That's become easier with the Internet and with an, an expanded enthusiast community. But at that time, it was quite difficult. And that's part of why it took us 12 years. Plus, I kept having to save up more money to, to keep fueling the restoration. Yeah, many restorations are like that. So TR3, that was like a... 1900cc motor, something like that, or 2000? 1991cc, so it was basically straight four, right? Considered, yep, straight four, considered a two liter car, um, produced at in, in stock form, theoretically 95 horsepower. People did relatively minor tweaks to the car, sometimes a hotter cam, maybe a carb upgrade, a few other things to, to boost the power, maybe into the 110 horsepower range. They were quite small, um, they were relatively nimble for the time. 
truly a sporty car and they were raced um, particularly in road races and some hill climb events and so they were they were very popular they were another example of the kind of cars that in particular that servicemen brought back from Europe in the in the 50s and early 60s um, and so this car mechanically behaves very much like that it has the distinction however this this unique body that was made for the car is a coupe so it is a two-seater coupe um, you could think of it visually I hope folks will go online and look for photos of the car, but visually you could think of it as similar to a TR4, but as if it had a fixed roof in a, in a coupe configuration. So that car was designed by Giovanni Michelotti. Lotti? Am I saying that right? Michelotti? Uh, Michelotti, yes. Michelotti, yeah. And he's, he designed some very interesting cars for a, a lot of different manufacturers, right? He did, including a number of cars for both Ferrari, uh, Maserati, and Lamborghini, more pedestrian cars later. He had a very long relationship with Triumph that included designing some things like the Spitfire and the Herald uh, and the Acclaim. And But he was prolific. He, people describe going to lunch with him and leaving with a tablecloth with three sketches for a car on it, which would ultimately make it into production. He could draw, he could create cars very quickly, but designed something on the order of eight or 900 cars in his lifetime, a large number of which made it into production. So he was, he was extremely well thought of. He was you know, one of the great designers of the 50s and, and 60s. He had a very long-standing relationship with Ferrari as a constructor, and so he was the designer of, of any number of, um, of Ferraris dating back to the early 50s. But he also had a very deep relationship with a gentleman named Alfredo Vignali, who was the, the founder of the Vignali Coachworks. And oh, so, yes, of course. Yeah. So when the time came for the gentleman whose brainchild the Triumph Italia was, this is a gentleman named Salva, Dr. Salvador Ruffino, who was Triumph's distributor in Italy. When he began to conceive with other designers, ultimately engaged Michelotti to do the design, and Michel at Michelotti's suggestion, ended up having Vignali be the coach builder or constructor for the cars. And so it was kind of a three-party um, arrangement. The original plan was to produce a thousand of these cars and one of the drivers for a number that large for what was really a special. Now, these specials were not unusual in the 50s, but that would have been a fairly large production run for one. But at the time, the assumption was that they would be able to place at least one car in every Triumph dealership worldwide. And those dealerships numbered 720, which tells you what a different world it was in the, the late 1950s. Because the cars didn't sell partly based on price, they ultimately ended up with a production run between 1958 and 62 of 300, as I said earlier, 330 cars. We track them quite closely around the world and we know that as of today there are 126 survivors some some running many not running and that's a pretty good survival rate for a car like this which was not considered anything you know truly extraordinary or special at the time so that's quite a good survivor rate no kidding. About 60 of those are drivable, we think. And we just did a, a quick tally. And one of the things that's happened, these cars have become more valuable over the years. Most anything coach build, the values have risen as extremely expensive things like Ferraris, which are numbered in the, you know, the you can count them on the fingers of one or two hands as those kinds of cars rose in value. Special cars with unusual coachwork have, have risen behind them, not at the same rate, but significantly. And as these cars in particular, the Italias, have become more valuable, they have flowed in general in the direction of Europe, which is where more interest in this particular era of cars and these val these cars of these of this value have have 
gained a, a really strong following. And as a result, we now have, uh, we number just 23 of these cars in the U.S. and only 12 of those are drivable. Wow. So you mentioned earlier, we will have three of these cars at the Forest Grove Concours in July. So we'll have essentially 25% of the drivable car, U.S. cars will be at that event, which is a really kind of a special thing to have multiples of these together. No kidding. How would you describe the driving experiences on a car like this when you compare it even to a TR3 or, you know, Old Triumph or Austin Healey or any old British car? It's quite similar to what a TR3 experience would be in terms of the amount of power. It's similar to an Austin Healey, although it has less power, is a somewhat lighter car than an Austin Healey. What I would generally say to people is that it is very much a vintage drive. Um, it is, you know, not like hopping in your Miata and, you know, taking a run around the countryside. It is an experience. You feel the car, you feel the road, you feel vibration. All that is very normal. They're not underpowered, but they're not wildly overpowered either. They're, they have pretty good low-end torque, so they have a bit of grunt off the line. They have decent acceleration. And with minor modifications, my car was restored believe it or not, with a non-period five-speed specifically because we knew we wanted to use it on the highway. Mm -hmm. And so with either an overdrive, which could have been standard on the car, or something like a five-speed, they'll cruise very comfortably at 60 to 65 miles an hour. I don't like driving it much over that. It begins to get a little rough and ready on the road. It's a vintage feel. It's um, anybody who has you know, driven on vintage events will tell you that driving a vintage car for more than a day or two is tiring. It takes a lot out of you. There's vibration through the wheel. You're, you know, you're constantly watching your gauges. You're more engaged with the car. You're more engaged with the road. But it is definitely not like cruising in in a in a modern vehicle. But it's very much like many other vehicles of similar time frame, late late 50s or early 60s in the Triumph, Austin Healey, MG, even a Mini. Those kinds of cars. My father had a 49 TC when I was a little, little boy. And, and one of the things I remember most about that car, other than the, the interesting experience of sitting in that car as a little kid and having the way the door comes down, you could put your arm on the door like a big boy, you know, or an adult. <laughs> Whereas if I'd been in any other car, I couldn't have reached it. But was watching him steer that thing. The, the steering wheel was constantly moving compared to our daily driver, which I believe at the time was a uh, Pontiac Tempest, if I remember right. My dad used to call, call it a lemon because it was such a bad car. But um, just watching him steer that thing, his hands were moving all the time. And I would imagine uh, maybe the tie is a little bit like that, although it didn't have those little tiny tall tires. It is a little like that. And the, the you know, an MGTC, uh, you know, this is a, you know, essentially 40s, early 50s technology, frankly, even some 30s technology is a bit more vintage still because you've got less development of the suspension component, so you're going to feel even more of the road. But in an MG of that area, you're also riding on very narrow bias ply tires, <laughs> yeah. and so you're going to you're going to feel pretty much everything. Those cars are a lot of work. Now, those were successfully raced, too, um, and became really, really popular with servicemen coming back from the war as weekend, you know, drive it during the week, race it on the weekend. That is an even more vintage feel. And for some people, that is exactly the experience they're looking for. And one of the reasons I own a vintage car is I like to drive it. And I like that portion of the experience. But as I think I said, at the end of a couple of days on a tour or a rally, I'm I'm ready for my modern Mini or my wife's <laughs> yeah. Honda or something. As a, It feels like you're stepping into a Rolls Royce to some extent. Yeah, it does for sure. Now, for the Forest Grove Concord, there's some great events happening. They're having a vineyard concert on Friday the 15th. They've got a tour on the 16th. Will any of the Italias be on that tour? 
I don't know for sure. Mine won't because I'll be driving down the, the day before. You know, I know there are folks that trailer their cars in. I don't have that luxury, so I'll be driving down and then detailing my car the night before. The other two Italians, I'm not sure. Um, one of the the cars of the three is a car which is very close in, to in number in production to mine. Each one of these cars carries a tag under the hood that identifies its not truly its production sequence, but it does tell you approximately where it was produced um, in the run. Minus car number two. 227. This car to which I'm referring is number 215. It's owned by a gentleman named Alex Hogland, who you may know. Um, he and his wife, Amy, are the, the owners of the Hogland collection in Olympia, and they recently acquired this car. It's a very well-known car because it's one of the two or three most original, complete and original cars still in existence. It, it's been repainted but pretty much everything else on the car is, you know, you know, the rubber has been replaced, but it is as built. It was discovered, um, owned by its original owner in Italy about 10 or 11 years ago by a gentleman in Britain. He bought it, had it for a number of years. It then made its way to LA and Alex and his collection bought the car, I believe early last year. It's a really special car. So even if you have seen an Italia, this is one to see because it's a car where the coverings for the seats, the, the door panels, the carpets, all of the trim is as original. It is not pristine. It is not a you know, a Pebble Beach show car, but it is one of the most original cars in existence. And so it's really fun to see that. I um, organized an event with six Italias at Concorso Italiano in Monterey for 2019. And you mentioned earlier, you thought you had seen one of that's, one of these cars before. That's probably where I saw it, yeah. Well, what was interesting for me was I had owned my car at that point for 19 years. I had never seen another car beyond mine. And so this was a unique experience for me to suddenly be in the presence of, of six of them was was great fun. I spent the, I was supposed to be interacting with people coming to see the cars, but I spent the whole time pouring over the other five examples because they, well, of course. it was so much fun for me. It's like discovering a cousin you never knew you had. <laughs> exactly. Yeah, very cool. So when it comes to the Forest Grove Concours, what is what is so wonderful about that event in your eyes? It is the really the only remaining concourse style event in the Pacific Northwest. As some listeners may know, there used to be something which originated as the Kirkland Concours, oh, yes. ultimately became the Pacific Northwest Concours. It was sort of um, acquired and moved to the LeMay Museum, and it, it kind of died. Yeah. Um, these these events are very expensive to stage. You need a you know a, you need a significant place to host them. There's a lot that goes into inviting and curating the cars that will participate hosting the, the people who visit with their cars and so forth. But Forest Grove now remains the only event of that um, style. And what, by style, I mean a, a concours, a concours d'elegance, which is essentially a show where what is being celebrated is the look and feel of the cars as opposed to how valuable they are or how perfectly they are restored. Now, Pebble Beach is the other end of the spectrum where there is a huge emphasis on the absolute correctness and perfection of the presentation of the cars. But other Concours, their focus is making sure you're seeing cars that are, of, frankly, of visual interest. And so, for example, there are Concours, and I believe Forest Grove is one, where there is no particular requirement that you ever open the hood of your car, that you ever open the trunk of your car. It is not about how perfectly prepared your engine is. It is the look and feel of this car, the place in history that that car provides a window to. And so what you will see is, at a typical Concours, is a very broad array of cars covering 
the turn of the 20th century and the first true cars on the road, first electrics and so forth, through the 20s, 30s and 40s, 50s and 60s, grouped together, 70s and 80s. And then you will sometimes see presentation of much more modern cars. But it is an opportunity to see this broad spectrum of history of cars from different manufacturers, different eras, different styles. There are many other events in the Pacific Northwest that are wonderful car events. There are two great all-British shows, which I often participate in. There's one in Portland. There's one in Seattle that's held up in St. Edward's Park in Kenmore. And those are a great chance to see anything and everything British and see lots of examples of every one of every Jag that comes and every Austin Healey that comes and every Triumph and every MG. But you don't get the breadth and depth of different kinds of cars that you will get at a, at a Concord. You can think of it as a as a really, really big, really nicely presented car show. The setting at Forest Grove is also quite special. For those who have not been there, this is the campus of Pacific University in Forest Grove. It is a classic, beautifully manicured. There are tree-lined paths. The cars are presented on grass, which is a lovely way to see them. It's summer, but it's not burnt dry like being out in a, you know, in a big field. And so you really get that feeling of sort of strolling among really special, really, really interesting looking cars, but in a really pleasant setting that feels like you just stumbled upon them on a college campus, which is more or less what you do. It is indeed a wonderful, wonderful event. We'll take a short break. When we come back, Talk a little bit about maybe a challenge you faced, so keep that in mind. We'll be right back. Auto Geek's Blackfire SiO2 Spray Sealant. It's a spray-on, wipe-off sealant that's quick, safe, and easy to clean and protect your vehicles. I love using it on all my cars. Auto Geek's Blackfire SiO2 Spray Sealant is a spray-on, wipe-away sealant that uses SiO2 ingredients to provide a slick, brilliant, and long-lasting shine. Silicon dioxide is known to be one of the most effective ingredients in car care products, and Blackfire Spray Sealant takes advantage of every stunning feature it has to offer. This sealant will protect your paint from road film, dirt, and other common contaminants while providing an impeccable, long-lasting, hydrophobic surface that forces water to sheet and bead on your paint for months. Go to autogeek.net to get yours and for the best product selections on the internet today, along with their skilled technical support. Autogeek.net is where I go for all my detailing needs. That's autogeek.net. Check them out today. If your car started today, well, thank a tech. If that truck delivering your goods today got to your home or your business, thank a tech. If that airplane you rode in took off and landed safely, and if that boat you're riding in arrived at the dock safe and sound, that's right, thank a tech. One thing the pandemic has taught us is that great techs keep America rolling. They are essential workers and we need them. Support career and technical education by getting involved with TechForce Foundation. It's a Cars Yeah charity of choice. Learn more at techforce.org today. Linkage. It's a new quarterly publication and website that covers the automotive market, driving, restoring, collecting, and discovering your passion for motor vehicles. Linkage is about experiences, opinions, and values. Linkage is an actual informed, reasoned opinion based on firsthand experiences. A talented Linkage team covers the automotive world, the people who share your passion and mine, smart, considered, rational, and experienced opinions, ones you can learn from and grow. That includes our passion that drives auctions and the collector car market. So come with me and join us on this journey. 
And be sure to use the code CARS yeah when you subscribe and they'll give you $10 off. Boom! Linkage, geared for the automotive life. Subscribe today at LinkageMag.com. So let's talk about this. I always ask my guests about the challenge question, and this is really more about a learning lesson in life. Now, this could evolve around your personal life or around cars. So take us down a little bit of a windy road, if you would. This is probably more of a personal lesson than it was a was a car related. Actually, it isn't a car related thing at all. So my business career um, was an unusual one. I worked a lot of places. I did a lot of different things. But one of the experiences I had, which was frankly not so pleasant, was um, over my 35 years of work, I had four different positions eliminated underneath me. Oh, gosh. And once upon a time, people worked at the same place most of their lives. And so that would have been a very unusual experience. And when it first happened to me, it was an unusual experience. I didn't take it personally at that time because it was a it was a mergers and acquisitions situation. I actually had an opportunity to stay with with the new, the acquiring entity, I didn't want to do that. But it was it was a little odd to be feeling like I was being successful in my position, but having the position go away. When it happened the second time, I decided to take it a little more personally. And so it, it was difficult to get past the notion of, well, wait a minute, now how come this has happened to me a couple of times? It hasn't happened to other people. I found my way to my ultimate long-term employer, but I also had a position eliminated underneath me there again. So it had actually happened to me three times in the course of about seven or eight years. And what I learned, and I, I learned it the hard way, was the third time that this happened, it, it, interestingly, it was a bit personal because it was primarily related to a conflict I had with a manager. But I took the opportunity to spent some time with some other people in the organization who I really admired and ultimately found an opportunity to work with them doing something different. And the ultimate takeaway there was I had a good relationship with those people. They had some things they were interested in having me do, but it wasn't clear that it was a long-term career for me. It might have just ended up being a project that would be a transition out of the company. But what I did was I took the advice of one of my mentors, which was to turn it into a job, make your own job. And the route for that for me was recognizing that what they wanted me to do was 10% of what really needed to be done. There was some significant business development things that needed to be done inside the company. Um, the, the company had reached a level of maturity that wasn't yet reflected in the way it managed itself. And so I took the opportunity to figure out what that other 90% would look like as a position position and mold it around what I thought I could do for the company and by way of adding value. That became a long-term, very long-term position for me. And, you know, I always characterize that for people as the best job you'll ever have is the one you make for yourself, <laughs> yes. but it needs to be something that's a win for your organization too. Great lesson for uh, people listening that find themselves in those positions because you can really get yourself down in a bit of a self-pity party when things happen and, and not look up above the mire or the quicksand you feel like you're falling into and look at other opportunities to reach for that that branch, branch overhead proverbial branch, if you will. Let's talk about a special vehicle. Now, we've talked about your Triumph. Is that the car that is most special for you? Is there another one in your life? No, that really is the one. I, you know, I, I would like to be one of these guys who has four or five cars and rotates them around and so forth. Um, and in some ways, I don't really have the financial wherewithal or the garage space for that. But that car has really become my focus, be, partly because I've had it for a long time. I've taken it through a long restoration, but also I've sort of wind, wound my way around into a role of managing a 
a worldwide community of owners and enthusiasts of the car. We track the ownership very closely. We know where the cars are located. We interact with the owners to keep updated on what they're doing with their cars, what work is being done, what parts are being refabricated that they might be interested in. But beyond the hundred and some odd owners who were who were in contact with, we have a network of about 3,000, I, I would call them enthusiasts, who are interested in anything and everything about the cars, who like to look at the photos, who like to hear the stories. Many of whom expressed an interest in buying the cars. I always have a list of 10 to 12 people who want to buy one of these cars and they just don't change hands very often. And so I spend a lot of time with that community, sometimes coaching through people through finding a car, um, sometimes um, indirectly or directly representing someone who wants to sell their car, doing research on the cars, um, posting photos. I, I'm the administrator for a Facebook page devoted to these cars. And so that's really, that car is really my focus. Um, every once in a while, I think maybe it's a little, you know, I'm a little, a little too focused and I should branch out and do something <laughs> different. And then I get sucked back in. I had the odd experience very early in, in, the, in COVID of learning that a gentleman about two streets away from me had passed away and left a garage full of cars and the estate was in the process of of letting those cars go and an opportunity came to buy a car out of that garage which I thought would then become my next restoration this was a, a 1961 Lotus Elite type 14 which he had acquired in the early 70s disassembled and it basically had just sat there since and the folks running the estate became a bit desperate when they had shed most of the cars in that garage to, to get that one shifted so I bought it for very little money and thought I would restore it and then began to think about how much work and how much expense that was and I ended up flipping it. So the mindset was there, but the, the will was the, the mindset was there, but I think the will to actually go through the project was not quite present. <laughs> Beautiful little cars. What year is your Triumph? It is a 1961. 61. Okay. Well, you know, what's interesting about your story and your answer to that question is you did, in essence, what your answer to the challenge question was, is you found a way to wrap that into your world and create something out of it through that car. So there you go. You learned a lesson and you did it again, right? Yeah, I wasn't even paying attention and I did it. <laughs> there you go. Hey, how about me being your car psychologist today? So I'm going to ask you a rather unique question that I suspect nobody's ever asked you. If you were reincarnated, pun intended, as a vehicle, what would Scott be, but more importantly, why? You know, interestingly, I would be the first car I ever owned. Okay. And not because I so brilliantly selected the car that best represents <laughs> me as my first car. It just wasn't, it just, it fits me in a particular way. My first car was a 1968 Ford Falcon station wagon. Okay. It's not glamorous. It's not particularly great looking, but it's fairly straightforward. It's pretty utilitarian. It does what it's supposed to do. And when I pop the hood, I know what everything under there is. Yeah. I can't fix it all, but I know what it is. It's very manual, you know, manual choke on the dash. It was an automatic, but it was, you know, it was just all very, very basic. And I don't mean Basic as in the, you know, econo box basic. It did exactly what it was supposed to do. It had space. It ran reasonably well for an American car of the 60s. It just kind of, it you know, I hate to use the phrase, but it sort of was what it was. And I have, I have wistfully thought of reacquiring one they they all have pretty much rusted to nothing it's not a common car anymore even though they they made tens of thousands of them but it just sort of fits me because that that's who 
I would characterize myself as a professional. That's what I was. I was a bit of a utilitarian plug-and-play person. I had some particular areas of expertise. I did them. I did them the way they I thought they should be done, but I wasn't flashy or um, you know exceptional in any other particular way. I think it just for whatever reason that just that card just sort of fit me. So when you were a teenage boy, you were every father of a daughter's nightmare showing up to pick up your date in a station wagon. Yeah, <laughs> I hadn't thought about I hadn't thought about that before, but yeah, that was probably true. I think probably in those days I was still borrowing my dad's cars, but uh, yeah, that was probably a window of time, and I never really thought about that. Well, it's a very interesting car, and I'm trying to think if I've ever even seen one. I don't know that I've ever seen one because you think of the Ford Falcon and a, a, I think it was the chassis for the Mustang, the early Ford Falcons. They just put a Mustang body on that that vehicle. But the 68, of course, yes, yeah, so, unique time. So this is one gen, one gen for sure. It might even be two, but I think it's one gen after that. So the Falcon station wagon, that you, the Falcon chassis that you would be thinking of is the the car you would the falcons you would think of from the early 60s early, which were yeah. quite quite small um a bit rounded they almost looked like little t-birds in a way yeah, um yeah. and th- those were very popular they had the uh there was the addition with the you know the faux wood paneling on the side and so forth mm-hmm. and those are actually quite fun little cars and there are people who who have you know done resto mods with those there was a there was a sort of a 1.2 on those where they had fins on the back yes but the the 68 is the car that became the the it was the Ford Falcon Futura so it was a little large it was produced as a four-door sedan. It was produced as a station wagon. It's before the generation of Ford wagons that became like the town and country, which mm, was much, much you know, bigger. Like the, the, was much much bigger. Um, and so it was a. It was a. I thought it was a particularly useful size. I don't remember that I bought it for any particularly logical reason. It was one of those things. It's. Um, I know what I paid, and and I'm sure it was the car I could get for five hundred eighty-five dollars. Yep. <laughs> and yeah. so that's that's exactly what. Like, that's exactly like, uh, why. My first, which was a '67 Chevy Nova 2. So, yep. Oh, yeah. yeah. We had a Nova 2 wagon when I was a kid. It was funny. I was going to say that one of the reasons I know the price of that car, one of the few car things from the, that was family related was my dad never owned a new car in his life. And for a very long time, he kept a, an index card in his wallet where he listed every car he ever bought and sold since the, would have been since the 30s. And for a long time, he was, he was above water on the net total. I think maybe, lost that late in life, but um, he kept track of that. Yeah, that'd be fun. So how about a great book you'd like to share with our listeners today? Well, for me, the the book that, that it is a great book. It is the book I've enjoyed the most in my life, and it's a book I read almost every year, um, and that is To Kill a Mockingbird. Ah, yeah, classic. Um, yep. This is a book, I'm, sh- I'm sure it was probably eighth or ninth grade standard reading. I don't remember reading it in school and being moved by it or attracted to it, but I certainly reread it later. I've been through four or five copies of it because I wear them out. It's a beautifully written book. Um, as many people know, it was written by an author named Harper Lee, who, depending on who you believe, um, never wrote another book. Um, there is another another book that was published in her name that was based on a, on a previously unpublished man, manuscript. But she wrote To Kill a Mockingbird. It won the Pulitzer Prize in, I think, 1961, and she never truly in her lifetime published another book. Um, it's an it's an astounding commentary on race relations in the United States. It's a it's a really interesting view into the South. And I think that's particularly pertinent right now. We have divides in this country that are um, take a lot of flavors, but it is it's hard to deny that one of them is is regional. And this is the this is the kind of literature that I think helps people 
get a window into that. Um, so for people who have not read it for years and years, it's one you know you can read it in a weekend. It's one I would always recommend to people, um, and it it affects me every time I read it, and I probably will continue to read it. And just you didn't ask, but as a companion, there's a book I read a number of years later, which quite reminded me of it, and it's one that I go back to um, as well. And it's a book called The Year the Lights Came On. It's written by Terry K. I believe it's pronounced K E Y, and it's a it's a coming of age book. Also takes place in the South, and it is about um, the experiences of 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 a young boy in his uh, probably ten, eleven, twelve, in a very small rural area at a time when the rural electrification administration first brought power to small towns and the effect that that had, and um, what it was like to what the experience of being a, a child was when that dramatic a change came to the world around him. Hard to imagine <laughs> in this day and age with it everything is. we have is when the lights go off, we freak out and think the world <laughs> yes, come yes. to an end. Yeah. So uh, there you go. So let's go on the ultimate drive. I'm going to enable you to take any car in the world. I'm going to provide it to you. You can take it anywhere and you can be with anybody, even somebody who's passed. Uh, what does that ultimate tour look like for you? Well, I'd like for I like the introduction where you're going to provide the car. Uh, well, most people that, do. Yeah, I, I've spent a lot of money over the last eight years buying cars <laughs> for people. I'm about broke. I'm sure. <laughs> well, to to start, the car for me is a 1965 Maserati Sebring Series Two. Ooh, beautiful car. And the reason for that is it is a beautiful car, and it would be a perfectly good choice for anyone. And I, I, they are wonderful cars, and and it would be it would be the car I would choose. And but for me, the reason I would choose it is it is the same same designer of the car that I own is the same designer, Giovanni Michelotti. It is the same constructor, the Vignali Coachworks, but it is more powerful, larger, and more comfortable. And those are the traits I would want for about a, let's call it a four-day vintage tour through France and Belgium and Mm. maybe Italy. Nice. How How would you take with you? Um, you know that that you you did pose that in advance, and I thought about that for a while, and I went through a variety of choices. You know, maybe the non-traditional ones, like I'm, I'm an admirer, I'm a huge admirer, admirer of Abraham Lincoln. It would be interesting to watch him on his first Whoa, car ride. No kidding, <laughs> but but maybe maybe disturbing in a way too. So maybe that's not a great idea. I thought about the some some obvious things, like it would be it would be interesting to do that with my dad, who has since passed. But that wasn't something we did together as as father and son. So I'm not sure about the fit for that. So interestingly, I chose somebody um, who is deceased, but kind of an interesting name. And the person I chose was indie driver Dan Weldon. Oh, okay. And the reason is um, I always admired him as a driver. Um, My wife and I spent uh, about six or seven years quite fascinated with IndyCar racing, and we watched the races together, and that was something fun for us to enjoy as a couple. But what was interesting was how few drivers there were who were better than the cars they drove and capable of winning from any position on a starting grid. And Dan Weldon was one of those. There's there are, you know, drivers like Castro Neves and Scott Dixon, Dario Franchitti in his prime, and a few others who were capable of starting 17th and winning the race and being interesting doing it. And Dan Weldon was one of those. Um, as people probably know, he won the Indy twice. Uh, won a number of of other IndyCar races, had had a, um, a career that was cut short in his early 30s by an accident at the Motor Speedway in Texas. But he was fascinating to watch drive because of that. But interestingly, in the last couple of years that he was driving, he did not have a full-time ride in any of the series. And so while you would see him race, um, we would tune in for a race and we would hope he was driving because we knew that that would be fun to watch. 
but he also became a broadcaster. And um, as anyone who's watched the number of football players attempt to become broadcasters and fail miserably, you know, it's not as easy as knowing a lot about the subject and then all of a sudden you can, you know, talk on camera. Right. He was wonderful. He was bright. He was incisive. He provided insights that other broadcasters did not. He was well-spoken. Um, he was simply entertaining. And so we would be just as happy to find that he was doing the broadcasting as, as, as if he was going to be driving. And I, I thought about the notion of being in a vintage car for four days with somebody. And the two, thi two things I would want to get from the experience were learn something about driving. Um, and you certainly can learn something about driving from someone of, of his, his driving caliber. But you're also going to be in a car for four days with somebody. This better be somebody that's interesting to talk to, to yeah. as well. Yes. <laughs> and he's someone who I would have loved to have had a chance to talk to because he, he, he spoke so clearly and um, authoritatively and in a very interesting way about the notion of driving and racing. So I think that would have been a great experience. Great choice. Well, you've taken us on a wonderful ride today, and I really appreciate it. Before I let you go, though, would you share maybe a success quote, a mantra, or maybe some words of inspiration for us? I have a quote. I'm going to share it, but I'm going to preface it by saying I've never really been able to apply it in my own life. Okay. I am a well-known procrastinator. If there is an opportunity to go do something other than whatever I'm supposed to be doing, I'm on it. Um, and so, and that was true personally, and is true that was true professionally too. But I do. I have always admired a quote, and this quote is either from a Scottish mountaineer named W. H. Murray or the German poet and philosopher Goethe. Uh, depends on who you ask. I like to think it was the, the mountaineer because it makes more sense to me. But the quote is, whatever you can do or dream you can, begin it. Boldness has genius, power, and magic in it. Mm, yeah, that is fitting for the way you described that. And I don't believe anybody's ever shared that with us. I appreciate that. Well, how can people learn more about the Triumph Italia? You mentioned, was it a Facebook page or a website? So we have, well, there actually, there are, there are two primary resources. There is a website, which I believe if you search Triumph Italia 2000, you will find it. It is managed by one of our three or four worldwide mark experts, a gentleman named Adrian Sinnott. And it is a, it is a great repository of history. It's the best place to learn the story of how they were, how they were conceived, how they were constructed, parts availability. We have a club of owners that one can join as well. Uh, but also there is a Facebook page for which I am one of the three administrators. And you can find that on Facebook simply by searching Triumph Italia or Triumph Italia 2000. It's a fairly typical Facebook page. And by the way, I, I know that having a Facebook page makes me somewhat dated. I, we don't do Instagram because the primary use of Instagram is photos. And while there are lots of great photos, we like to have an opportunity to provide information in you know more context than you can typically get in a, in a photo caption. Yeah. So we use Facebook. We try to post at least a couple, three times a week. I spend significant amounts of time interacting with the car owners and enthusiasts um, to come up with new photographs um, with relatively small number of cars. Obviously, there aren't new photographs every day, but we scour the internet pretty pretty thoroughly to come up with pictures of, of the cars at shows, at events. We're always in particular looking for period photos because there are very few. We had the very fun experience just a year ago 
of discovering two previously unknown photos of an Italia parked on the streets of Monaco during um, a Grand Prix weekend in 1961. We think they were promotional photos, but it's just great to think there was a car there at that time. But so the Triumph Italia 2000 Facebook page, there will be one or two new posts every week. The page is open for comment. We don't take user posts so that we don't have to worry about excessively moderating the content, but we try to keep it very fresh. But you can also message us through that page and I will always get, a mess- if you post a comment, I'll read it. But if if you message to the page, we can do that too. And then again, encourage people to, if they have an opportunity and they have the day, um, it is Sunday, I believe the 17th of July, we'll have three of these cars at the Forest Grove Concours in Forest Grove, Oregon. Um, the, all the owners will be there. I guarantee there will be other other owners and enthusiasts who will be stopping by. It's a great time to learn about the cars and talk with people who are enthused about them. Absolutely. And you can learn more about the Forest Grove Concours at their website, forestgroveconcours.org. Scott, thanks for taking us on a wonderful journey today. This has been great fun. You taught me a lot about a beautiful little car. Until you and I talk again, I'll see you at the Forest Grove Concours. Great. Thank you very much, Mark. This was great fun. Thank you so much for joining us on today's ride here at Cars Yeah. Drive on over to CarsYeah.com to find show notes and inspiring automotive fun. Download your free copy of Filler Up a fun book filled with gorgeous photographs of fuel filler fun, including quotes from more inspiring automotive enthusiasts. Download your copy today, and we'll see you next time on Cars Yeah!